Hello everyone and thank you so much for downloading this episode of Beast Pod. On today's show, Mem and I discuss the sacking of Harry Kuehl in a pod that was part recorded today in response to the latest events and part recorded yesterday. It's probably our most emotional and emotive pod yet. We look back over a series of failure at the heart of the club that has led us to this predicament and wonder whether it actually even matters anymore who's in charge of the playing side for as long as we have the shambles behind the scene continuing. It's the pressing pod, but we hope, as usual, there'll be some positive news in the future. Stay with the B, stay with the team. And we really hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Bees Pod. Uh, my name is Ian Bottrell, and I'm joining you on the afternoon or early evening uh, upon hearing the news that Harry Kuehl has been relieved of his duties as head coach at Barnet Football Club. And to discuss this news, I'm joined by Mem. Uh, Mem, first of all, how are you doing this evening? Yeah, good, thanks. It feels like we're sort of having a, a, a nightly meeting, you know, on on Zoom. Yeah, both of our respective partners will be delighted to see us spend more time in front of a computer screen talking about football. Uh, but for now, there is quite a lot to talk about. I mean, I guess the, the first sort of thing to say is this is quite a long episode. Um, Mem and I recorded last night, and I think a lot of what we talked about, hopefully you'll agree as you listen, is, is relevant to the current situation. Um, but we thought it would be uh, it would be strange to put out a podcast uh, today that doesn't quite um, discuss the news that Harry Kuehl has been sacked. We obviously later on in this show go on to potentially preempt this decision. But Mem, initial reactions um, to this: surprised, shocked, happy, disappointed, or a mixture of all of the above? I think it was inevitable. Uh, I'm surprised that it happened so quickly. I, I anticipated he'd get at least maybe Saturday, but I think. TK has probably looked ahead, I and mean, even probably Dean Brennan as well. And it was interesting in the statement that Dean Brennan seemed to take some sort of responsibility for the decision. I think they looked at the next the next four games and thought, we need to win three of these. And in the way we're looking at the moment, are we going to win three of the next four games? And I think it was quite clear that the answer was no, and we needed to find a solution. I think there's often a bit of shock coming out of the club that we've sacked a manager after seven games. Even by our standards, that's quite poor. I guess the initial reaction, therefore, is, well, is this quite harsh? Is it a disappointing sacking? Have we really given him time to embed a style of play considering we've had a lot of injuries? On the other hand, you can probably see where they're coming from in regards to, and I think I alluded to this later on in the show today, if something's not working, why wait for it to get worse before you fix it? Um, So... I guess on a very simple yes or no, Mem, do you agree with the decision? Yeah, no, I agree with it. Yeah, totally. I'm surprised. I'm surprised he did it so quickly, and so it was. But it definitely needed to happen. From everything that you'll hear us discuss from the recording from last night, it is definitely the right decision. And I guess that opens up a couple of questions now, not least around the immediate future, because uh, we did predict that uh, Brennan would assume temporary control and that's perhaps an issue when you do have quite a young director of football is there's that conversation always lurking in the background it's always difficult to predict with Barnett but what do you anticipate happening over the next sort of few weeks or so do you expect Brennan to perhaps move into that head coach role and us to sort of reevaluate the model we put down in pre-season do you expect him to sort of step back uh, and go back into their director of football role and find someone else in there or do you expect him to potentially become the head coach and someone else be appointed as director of football well, I suppose in some respects, the the job is there for him to lose because he's going to be put in there. And I'm sure in the back, he always wanted to be the main man. And um, he's been brought in because I think TK was 
trying to find the best of both worlds, have a coach with somebody who's good at recruitment, but didn't want to put all his eggs in one basket. So I think if Brennan gets some good results, I think give, he buys himself some really good, um, a lot of credit, which means that, you know, he's got an option to go to the and say, I want the job full time. But I don't want the system, I don't want this process to be blown up. I do not want it blown up just because it failed with Harry Kill. And the fact is, is we could all be looking at Brennan as well, for, in some respects, looking at his recruitment um, over the last, you know, over the last, over the summer. So, and we have talked about this in, in, in great length, but I think ultimately it's there for him to, to, to you know, it's, it's, it's there for him to lose the job. But he does say in his, um, in his state, in the statement, and I, I'm just trying to pull up the statement on my phone. Um, but what he did say in there, which was, which was quite um, interesting, was he talked about that they will be this, they're going to be looking for a head coach. So he... Let me, let me just actually, Mem, as, as a matter of course, for those people that haven't had access, I'm just going to read out the statement to, to people who are listening and then you can jump in with your comment. It's quite a short statement as these tend to be. Just says here, Bonnet FC have parted company with head coach Harry Kuehl and assistant coach Paul Butler with immediate effect. The club's head of football, Dean Brennan, said it was clear how much Harry Kuehl wanted to have a positive impact, but ultimately the results and poor starts to the season have dictated our decision. The plan for this season was for Barnet FC to be challenging in the top half of the table, and that is still very much our aim. The club will now begin the process of replacing, or sorry, recruiting a replacement and will provide an update once this has been completed. Dean Brennan will temporarily assume responsibility for first team matters whilst the club looks for a permanent replacement. And then we'd like to thank Harry and Paul for their efforts going forwards. Um, sorry, for their efforts at the, at the time at the Hive and wish them every success going forwards. So I'm assuming you're picking up there on the fact that it says the temporary assumption of control by Brennan and also the club are beginning a process of recruiting a, a replacement there. Yeah, exactly. Well, not only that, look at the wording um, where it says here, um, what's it called? Uh, the, the, ultimately, the results and poor start to the season have dictated our decision. So it's very much Brennan has a as a voice in that in that process. That's interesting because I thought they were equals. Well, the organogram suggested they were equals, but we we did say that this was inevitable to some extent. We you know anyone who um, even prior to the season beginning, you would have your suspicions when you've got someone standing around in the background who is young enough and thinks they can do a better job and has never been a director of football before. This sort of thing could happen. I guess the, the question is, are we confident that Brennan is the right person to, to potentially take on that role full time? I mean, is it not reasonable to have kind of quite serious concerns about his own performance, considering that he was responsible for the recruitment? And as this statement suggests, he is higher up in the hierarchy than Harry Kuehl. I think the jury's out. I think the jury's out. I think, I think the key to it is let's see what he can do. But ultimately... You know, he is, as the director of football, he would be responsible for making sure that that squad was fit for purpose and robust enough for us to get through a season and challenge. And if he signed off on a, on a squad that, you know, has the deficiencies that it has, and, and I don't want to get, I don't want, also, I don't want to, I don't want people to misunderstand me. I actually don't think, I think the Beadle squad was more of a disaster than this squad. Um, I don't think this squad is actually a terrible squad. I think there's actually quite a lot of good players in it. I think the problem is, is firstly, we, uh, Kuehl, I, I mean, I, the only, I've used the word amateurish, but I genuinely thought that when I watched, looked at how the team was set up in the games that I've watched from pre-season up until Bromley, it, it, it didn't look like a top-level coach. The, the, the way the team was set up and the way that it was organised didn't strike me as a, you know, as, as a top-level coach. 
and there's obviously a pute with the deficiency, obviously, which we've t- we'll talk about a bit later, but uh, in midfield. So Dean Brennan signed off on that. So is it is is he now able to spot that and look at that and go, okay, you know what, I've had a chance, the dust has settled. I definitely need to go and get a, a central midfield player in. But there is enough good players in there that if, say, a Darren Curry or if, say, a uh, you know a Neil Smith came in, they'd be like, okay, there is something to work with. I just I might go and get a loan player from a Premiership club or a, a Championship club to try and get that legs into the team. But there are good players in that team. Yeah, it's interesting just looking at the initial odds from from Bet Victor here. We've obviously got you know no clear favourite. Uh, Dean Brennan three to one, Curry four to one. Then you've got Allen at six, Campbell at eight. And then sort of Smith, Paul Ince, Luke Garrard, uh, and then everyone else, you've got some really quite left field picks who just tend to sort of be lumped in with um, these sort of things. So Curtis Woodhouse, Wesley, which would be, I think even by TK standards would be extraordinary, Chris Powell, Danny Searle, etc., Ian Holloway. Um, is there anyone that sort of stands out to you, Mem, that you think actually we could potentially make a move towards this? People have talked about Neil Smith a bit. I know uh, he did a reasonable job at Bromley. Um, but I'm always a bit suspicious of essentially one club men um, and whether they can replicate that success elsewhere. Um, and then the other names in there, you know, Darren Curry, I think potentially could be a fantastic option for us, but I don't know if he'd necessarily be willing to return. Um, Allen probably has ruled himself out through health grounds and then you're left with a bunch of other people in there, you know, Sol Campbell, Paul Ince, um, you know, who are just basically serial, serial failures uh, in the same way that Kuehl was. Is there anyone that you think... Mm, actually, they would be a good a good appointment uh, as a head coach. Looking at the team, the way the team is set up, and the way the team has been playing, I, 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 there was a part of me that felt that Darren Curry wouldn't be able. To, I, I wasn't sure that he had the the experience to actually build a squad from scratch at the beginning of the season. But now the squad is there, and you look at the shape of the side. You have good balance in um, across that left side. I think. Um, it's it's a system that that gave uh, that served Curry really well for us before, which was the, the playing with wing backs. And if we can sort out the right wing back, well, no, actually, we already have a right wing back. We've got Cisse, so we've got Cisse and Beard on each side. We've got nice balance, I think, at centre back. If we can get uh, Turley back, and if we can get um, you know, and I think Harry Taylor could could fit in. But I just think there is there is something there there is a structure that i can see but i think i think darren curry will know what he needs to do with that team i mean the first thing he did was when he came in he brought in james dunn before his legs went um and james dunn was that mobile center mid and i think he'll it seems to be the same thing curry came in brought in a mobile center mid bassy came in brought in a mobile center mid and i think it'll be clear to me that that will be the probably the first signing curry makes uh yeah, so, you, so you're you're fairly confident, or you, you think there's a, a reasonable chance that Curry will return? I think, yeah, from what I've heard behind the scenes, there is a will. Um, it's just whether or not the there is. Um, I've heard, yeah, I've heard there's a will for it to happen, and it's whether or not th- they can make it work. That's all I can say at the moment because I don't have enough sources to really go f- full on in, in on it. But I do. I have heard that there has been there is um, a little bit of interest. But yeah, I'm not going to be. I'm not. I'm not going to be stung. But I'm not going to be stung Brennan style. Yeah, no, quite. I mean, I think the the other interesting thing about Curry is that for all of his positive work with the club, he hasn't got another job since um, beyond the sort of Sheffield United, Sheffield United under twenty threes gig for a few months. So I think there's probably 
a will and a need on both sides to kind of bring himself back into into the game. Um, but we'll have to see. Well, I think then what we'll do is we'll, we'll leave it there in terms of our input on the sacking um, and then we'll sort of jump ahead into the rest of the pods. Um, but as ever, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think has happened. Uh, in the rest of the pod, we, we, we're actually going to keep in um, the the kind of the discussion we had around whether Kuehl should stay or go, not least because I think it's quite pertinent and raises some issues and thoughts that are relevant irrespective of whether the sacking happened today or what would happen in the future. Um, but as ever, we really hope you enjoy this show. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's Barnet, so anything that's more than 24 hours old is suddenly out of date. Um, but let us know what you think. And Mem, thanks for joining me today. And uh, hopefully, as much as it's fun to see you every single day, uh, hopefully we'll manage to go a few days without some sort of chaos coming out of the club. Yeah, you know what's going to happen is, is literally, as soon as we, I, I press stop on the record button, there's going to be an announcement of a new manager. You know it. <laughs> so guys we will be the moment we can guarantee the moment there is a new manager we'll be back on with a new pod but um, until then enjoy the rest of the show and thanks for listening hello everyone and welcome to this episode of bees pod uh, my name uh, is ian bottrell and i'm delighted to be joined uh, on this podcast by mem uh, how are you doing this evening mem yeah, not bad, not bad. Um, there is obviously some pain flowing through me after yesterday, and I'm sure we'll get into into that today. Yes, unfortunately, uh, for those of us who uh, listened to our last episode, which had pain in the title, uh, pain has only increased uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, Mem and I were fortunate enough to be, or unfortunate enough to be, depending on how you look at it, at the Bromley game yesterday. Um, and it's quite clear already that we are not looking for the well, not looking ahead to the most positive season, um, and indeed there are quite a few problems that have emerged already that, at least in my mind, put us at serious danger of, of relegation, um, or at least being in a relegation battle for the next few months. What we're going to do on tonight's show is we're going to start by looking back at the Bromley game itself and picking out some of the patterns that we've seen in the past few games. Uh, we're then going to kind of get into a couple of really great questions that have come in um, around sort of more long-term issues with Kuehl, with Brennan, etc. And then finally finish off with uh, just some of your brilliant questions that have come in. And thank you so much to everyone who has sent in those questions. Um, but man, perhaps if we just start with the Bromley game itself, because I feel that that game encapsulated just so many of the issues we've had already this season. Just talk us through the game yesterday, talk us through the patterns that came up and, and what sort of issues that you're seeing on the pitch which are making it very difficult for us to win games at the moment. Okay, so, I mean, starting off, I thought actually for large passages of the game, we actually seemed in control. And I, I, I know that sounds like a strange thing to say after a 2-0 um, away defeat, but I felt that we had possession in the first half, quite a lot of it. We were punished uh, for what looked like a very soft penalty. And in the second half, we were punished for switching off for a free kick. But I, I mean, some people I've seen have said, thought the defence has been terrible and I've heard all this sort of stuff. I generally thought that, that we were actually quite comfortable um, in defence. I think, so the two big things that came out of the game that yesterday, which to me seem to be endemic for the season so far is... The first thing is around the mobility in midfield. Um, and I know we've talked about this on online already. And I know it's been the talk of everybody online. But the, the midfield is really, really hampering the whole team. Because in a side, in any side, if you need the midfield to connect to the side. And they're not, they're not protecting the, the back four. And they're not 
uh, linking up with our um, with our attackers. And the second thing is is that we don't have any players capable of running in behind. So we are constantly the defenders are constantly taking a very high line up against us uh, and squeezing the play, which is making um, it turn into a battle in you know in all parts of the pitch because everybody's so close together. Um, and so for me, looking at that and looking at the way we played, um, it was there was lack of creativity. And I think, no, and by creativity, and also this is the thing: it's not just about playing a wonder pass. Creativity, creativity is about um, about moving the ball with a purpose, and then literally trying to suck teams in, and then and then hitting them with um, you know either with a switch or hitting them with a through ball. But what we're not doing is is that we the the way that we're playing is we're giving the ball to people to players and then almost like saying right see what you can do now whereas in other teams that are better is that what they do is they suck the team the opposition into one area and then literally switch the ball to somebody who's completely free and that player can do so, uh, you know and then that player can do some damage um we didn't make the most of uh the fact that cousins was incredibly ropey from every cross that came in and Beard put some unbelievable deliveries in yesterday and we didn't make the most of them and if I was uh, what I don't understand is why the players weren't instructed right just get the ball out and I don't care what you do don't dilly-dally with it just whip the ball in and at one point and we had um, Stephen Cranfield behind us who was who was doing his nut quite rightly just saying look why aren't we just doing the simple thing of getting the deliveries in and not faffing around in the wide areas so in summary, I think our biggest problem has been the recruitment of the players in that we don't have the energy in midfield and the mobility in midfield to, to get on the ball or to uh, to nip things in the bud and to stop runners. And the second thing is we haven't recruited anybody who is capable of breaking in from deep and running in beyond the striker. And that is causing us all sorts of functional problems all around the pitch because of those two things, in my opinion. Yeah, the analogy I used sort of yesterday in our in our brief sort of Twitter high five was this idea of the body and, and where when something goes wrong in your body, you sort of tend to overcompensate in other areas, which in turn can cause other sort of problems. And I think you're absolutely spot on. For me, it comes down to three things. Um, the first one is the lack of mobility in centre midfield, which particularly when you're playing a 3-4-3, three, three, you rely on those two central midfield players being able to both basically go box to box. And if you look at the teams that have played that 3-4-3, most notably Antonio Conte's Chelsea side a couple of years ago, they were renowned for having very dynamic central midfield players and also wing-backs that can also do a similar role. So you can shift from having three centre-backs and almost play like a 3-3-5, a right, in, in regards... Sorry, 3-3-4, three, three, sorry, going forwards. Um, and equally then go into a back five and condense, uh, condense play as well when you're sitting behind the ball. The lack of mobility there is a real problem. And I know a lot of people were having a go at Brundle. Um, and, you know, he was, he was poor yesterday. But we saw last season how the system makes such a big difference to the quality of, of, of output we get from players. And, you know, Bassi's work towards the end of last season with players that we'd written off um, just goes to show that, it's not always the individual. And if, you're, if you've got someone like Mitch Brundle, um, you're going to have an issue in terms of like mobility. You've got to build a team around him. Go ahead, man, before I carry on. No, sorry. Uh, the point I was going to make was, and you made a really good point about Simon Bassey. But what I think, one thing I would say is, who was the one of the first players that Simon Bassey brought, brought in from outside? Yeah, of course, Skeffington, right? What does Skeffington do? Box to box. Exactly. 
But I, I think that carry, carry on. But I, was, I thought that was an important point to make, though. In that, in that, yeah, in, in what no, you, you're, you're spot on. But the, the point being is that some players look very good in certain systems and with certain players around them, and they look very bad in other ones. The classic example is, you know, at Barnet, we used to always say, "Oh, if only we had a striker, or if only we had a, an attacking player." You know, when you play a four-five-one and you don't have much of the ball, it's very, very difficult for that single striker to look very, very good. Right, it's very, very difficult because they're constantly up in a one v three, one v two, even a one v four battle sometimes. So I think the first issue is that the team's not set up in a way that brings out the best of some of the players we've got. And I think Brundle is a very easy scapegoat. I don't think he's a very good player. I don't think he's certainly not very fit. He's certainly not twenty six years old. <laughs> no matter what anyone tells me, he's not twenty six years old. Uh, but that's one issue. The other thing that's interesting is I think you can probably begin to group our our games this season into three categories. So the first category, uh, I would say, is games where we kind of basically just get battered. Um, so a good example of that would be the Notts County game, uh, the Chesterfield game. Um, and to some extent, actually, and I know it's a weird one because we've got a point, but the Solihull Moors game. If you look at the stats from those games, the, the Notts County game, the first game of the season, we had 14 shots, uh, kind of, we, we had 14 shots against us. The Solihull game, uh, we had 15 shots against us. And then the Chesterfield game, uh, we had uh, 11 shots against us. We just concede in those games a really high volume number of shots. The second two games, which I think the Bromley game will probably fall under, is where we basically make two mistakes or we, we allow two goals to happen. And then the opposition just kind of like, you know what, let's just kill the game, let them have the ball and not do much with it. And I think Bromley game was a great example of that. We gave away a very naive penalty um, and they were very comfortable. And as you said, we, we had a lot of the ball, we didn't do much with it. Similar with Dagenham, we just kind of made two mistakes and Dagenham were just like, you know what, let's just conserve our energy. I think it was a bank holiday game and see the game out. So I think it's difficult to read too much into those games in terms of our performances. There was a lot of positivity in regards to like, we did have the ball a lot yesterday, but also like you can let Barnett have the ball because we're not going to do much with it. And then the kind of final group of games are games where we're kind of like, you know, matching sides. And the only game I think we've really done that this season is well, probably two, Grimsby and Eastley. Although with Grimsby, again, you know, they should have been out of sight before we started playing. The, the worrying thing for me, though, the, probably the most worrying thing is the fact that we're not capitalising on very basic things. For example, set pieces. Yesterday, we had double the amount of corners that Bromley had. Obviously, Bromley scored off one to the back post. This ridiculous faffing around, and Stephen was quite right, faffing around with these bizarre like set-piece routines is really concerning to me because it just suggests a complete lack of awareness as to what's actually working on the pitch. If you want to do a short corner routine, go ahead. Absolutely fine. No issue with that. Not a Neanderthal. You can work it, work a 2v1. But knocking the ball two yards and then putting it in the box is extraordinary. And it, we've had actually quite a lot of corners in our play, like going forwards, you know, the Dagenham game, we had quite a few, we had quite a few yesterday, um, we had a few up at Grimsby as well. Like we're, we're getting the ball into areas where we can kind of create sort of semi-opportunities. We had five corners on against Chesterfield, they only had two, but we're wasting them. And so my big question is, when you look at the side, how much of this is recruitment and the fact we don't have a central midfielder and how much of it is just a, a complete inability to come up with a coherent game plan that maximises our strengths? It's a difficult one because obviously we don't know what, what, what they've been instructed. But one thing I would say, and this probably comes down to the, the recruitment again, is the lack of leaders in the team. So in that scenario, and I, I you know, look, I was by no means a professional player, but I remember from when I was a player, if I saw something was working, I would be telling everybody in the team, 
right, have you noticed that goalkeeper keeps doing this? All right, we need to capitalise on that. And I think to myself, they're professional players. Is I don't understand how why somebody hasn't picked up on the fact that Cousins is flapping at everything. So why not keep putting crosses down his throat and then and attack him? So like you said, this th- there was I mean Sam Beard's delivery was when he got when he got the ball out you know got out the ball out wide on the left side his his delivery was bang on it was really quality hard and it was whipped in with pay it was whipped in with pace in the right danger zones and cousins was flapping around like anything it was you know when we remember how bad he was at, cro- at crosses and then you look you got this corner routine where sam beard is knocking it into flanagan who's then hitting it with an outswinger and you're looking at it going why doesn't Sam Beard just whip it in and whip it in on top of Cousins and let get and, and we've got play we've got big players to go and attack the ball. I don't understand why why we didn't crank the pressure up on Cousins. If anything, we let him off we let him off the hook in a big way. And even when at points when Efron came onto the pitch and he was in wide areas, again he was doing his triple step overs and stuff and and then he couldn't deliver across. And I'm just thinking you know, if this was a solihull team of of a season or two ago, you know, under Tim Flowers, they would have come out of that game and won that game three two because they'd have they'd have banged in two a couple of goals off corners and a goal off a free kick, uh, and despite being you know being technically inferior, would have won that game because they made the most of their set pieces, and it's something we've discussed on this show as well many times about the fact in this division you've got to start you've got to score from your set pieces. And we had far too many that were just completely wasted. It was, it was, uh, you know, we both stood there. We were both so frustrated. Yeah, and I think this is the thing, isn't it? Is it to all, you know? And I think we will always say it, right? You win football at this level in both boxes. You win it or lose it in both boxes. Defending our own box is serious issues there. I mean, one of the things I want to pick up with you, Mem, is, is just the amount of penalties we're conceding. I think we've conceded six penalties in seven games. Um, now, obviously, you get the odd decision etc you, you know sometimes get a bit of a run but considering that many suggests a couple of things first of all that we're doing far too much one-on-one defending in the area uh at least we, or the system is currently enabling that to happen which when you think about it you know even tactically the whole point of a three five a three five two to some extent is that you're able to kind of capably defend balls into the box it's one of the reasons it's quite a good formation you can have three lumps in the middle of a pitch who are able to kind of comfortably get anything away you don't want to be kind of conceding too much ground in there. It's not as we've got players sort of sprinting back or out of position. And also, in theory, it's, it's, it should be harder at the five for those wide players to get dragged out of position, right? So you're going to have an extra man covering round compared to a four. We're conceding a lot of penalties. And obviously, the other thing yesterday was really disappointing was to concede that set piece. And again, Brundle potentially thought they're losing the 1v1. But, you know, it's a systematic setup. That that guy, I think it was Bush who scored, is going to beat Brundle in the air every single time, right? Bluntly speaking, it's, you know, if you're putting him on, on a one-on-one at the back post, it doesn't really speak volumes about the quality of the tactical setup. From what you saw yesterday, where we obviously gave away another penalty, albeit very, very soft, why is it that we are quite inept at defending our own box? Is there some sort of structural issue going on or is there something better that, you know, or something that you can help us to understand there? It looks to me like the players are on edge. It looks like they're they're so they're not confident in the in the pro in the system. I mean, if the player was confident in the system, they'd be like, okay, I'm he's going past me. I'm not going to put my leg out because I know that my teammate is going to smash him. Whereas it's almost like they're panicking into making a challenge because they don't trust each other that, that, that somebody else will come in and cover. Um, that's what it looks like to me. I mean, tomorrow yesterday was really soft. It looked to me like a tangle of legs. Um, 
I've heard some people say that they thought it was a penalty, but it was a very soft one. But it's again, it's, it's, it's having that awareness to be able to say, right, that guy's gone past me. I best not, I, I got to get out of the way. Um, rather than sort of still be in and around the vicinity so the guy can clash legs with you and fall over. Again, some of that's experience. Some of that is know-how. And, I, and, and it, but it points back to the fact that it w- makes me wonder if the players trust the system. Do they trust that, that they're going to be covered by... The, do they trust each other? Is it because they're not, they've not gelled? It's difficult to, to pinpoint it. I, there is an element of uh, they haven't gelled, they don't know each other, they don't trust each other, they don't know, you know, and so they're making, you know, panicky challenges in the box. It's, it, it is, it's, it's baffling. Yeah, I think just going on to the first of a couple of our questions now that have come in, the first one from Nicholas talking specifically about Marriott, which we'll come back to in a moment, and then the other one from uh, Simon uh, Martin Dill talking about, from a playing point of view, are there any positives? It's it's difficult because actually when you look at that team, there are some bright flashes, and we talked about Flanagan being quite good on the ball, Tazdemir potentially being quite good on the ball. You know, Bloomfield, we've had far worse number nines up front uh, than him. It, in terms of that sort of lack of trust and gelling, that's what kind of Kuehl was alluding to in the interview he gave uh, to that sort of Australian um, newspaper about the issues he's facing. But just in response to those two questions specifically, are there any positives with what we're seeing on the pitch at the moment that we can build on? Or is it a case that, you know, as you said, it, it, it's like we've got kind of like a, lack, a lack of trust, which only is really going to compound, I think, as the season goes on, because the structural issues aren't going to go away, you know, in the squad, we currently don't have a centre midfielder who's capable of playing in a three-four-three. Three. Um, but are there any positives in your view? And and specifically, if you could perhaps talk about Marriott, because you know, bless his soul, he was playing number eight yesterday. Uh, sure, he didn't sign up for that when he was brought in pre-season. Um, you know, is he another player that <laughs> you know could be perhaps getting slightly better out of him if he was playing somewhere else on the pitch? Well, I suppose that the first to first the first of your points around what is bright. I actually think the left-sided. The left-sided link-up is actually quite a positive, um, looks quite positive to me. The the Widdison to Beard to Tasmadimir, Tazma, uh, I can never say his name, Tasdemir, Tazdemir, um, is, is, is looking quite a nice link-up. There's a nice shape to that and there's a nice sort of um, understanding going on. And I think actually when things start to go a bit crazy is, is the point where we took Tazdemir off, off, the, off the left side. Um, I mean, yesterday we were playing a four-four-two, but it was kind of lopsided, um, where it looked a bit of points. It did look like a three-five-two, but it was actually a four-four-two. But it was a very odd one. Um, but I thought that when Tazdemir came off, we seemed to l- lose the control of the ball. Um, but that left side is looking promising. The only problem is, is the right side is not quite the right side of that sort of section of the pitch. So going out from, so we've got. Um, Bit Richards Everton playing as a right side centre back when he's left footed, which is looking a bit wonky. And then we've got Harry Taylor, who and this is one of the things I was I brought up brought up, which I just don't understand. Harry Taylor is a he'll do a job at right back, but bearing in mind the centre and midfield is looking so weak, and we've got a right back sitting on the bench. I don't understand why we don't have either put Cisse at right back, and then bring Harry Taylor into centre mid, and then just try and try and you know strengthen those areas. Um, so I don't understand why that is. And I think it's just the lack of disjointed play that Adam Barry is struggling to sort of get some, some kind of, um, 
he he looks like he reminds me of Adam Birchall. He's kind of very clever. He takes up little pockets, but he's never going to beat you in a sprint. But what it is, he's nippy, and he it, what he'll do is he'll it'll ghost in them places. But I think he's struggling to find any kind of connection with any players, and that's and I think that's coming from a lot of that from the centre and midfield because. Whereas, you know, if he knew that there was a guy in centre midfield that when he made a run, they would pick him out or if he could link up play with them or there's a guy that's going to come and play off him. But he's, I think he's looking around the pitch trying to find um, partnerships and he's struggling a little bit. Um, I mean, the whole big man, little man thing, which, which he's got, which at the moment is with him and Bloomfield is not quite working. Um, and I think part of that is because both of them play in front of the defenders and not one of them is trying to make that run in behind. And I think that's what's the. I think that's a big part of the problem. So, I think he's just trying to find his place. He's clearly a talented player, and he's clearly trying to get on the ball, and he's trying to really make something happen. But he's, but it's it's that that whole area of the pitch around the centre is uh, from the centre midfield through to the strikers, is is really dis is really disjointed. Yeah, and it, it, I think just now, sort of moving on to perhaps the, the broader issues we've seen on the pitch this season. As I said, it does sort of feel that games are sort of breaking down into several categories. I, I would I would caution the fact that for as bad as the start has been, it could have been worse. I mean, if you look at the underlying stats, the XG, shots conceded, the sheer dominance that some sides have had over us, Chesterfield, for example, being a great illustration of the, the scoreline not reflecting the dominance they had in the side. And then, sorry, not reflecting the dominance they had in the game. Like, we should be under no illusions that the output of the current side is a lot lower than the majority of teams in the division. And when you start sort of looking into the data of even clubs that are around us in the relegation zone, you know, Aldershot, Dover, um, and then looking ahead to sort of teams that we're playing in the next few run of games like Kings, Lynn and Weymouth, like we are really conceding a lot of chances and we're conceding a lot of needless sort of set pieces and we're not looking particularly strong going forwards. Perhaps moving away, though, from the playing side of things and instead thinking about uh, the sort of underlying recruitment, a, a lot of questions really coming in here about the roles of Brennan and, and kind of what perhaps the or where the responsibilities lie and fall. One of the really interesting points I, I think I saw, I can't remember who it was who made the point, um, was the fact that in the kind of organogram of responsibility, there seems to be some sort of confusion with regards to the fact that Brennan and uh, Kuehl were kind of at the same point on the on the same hierarchy level. And also that if you look at the recruitment, the majority of these players have been brought in, at least in some parts, they've played on a Kuehl before. And indeed, Brundle was probably the only signing of someone who, who wasn't brought in before uh, or who hasn't played for Kuehl beforehand. So my first question really is, Mem, where does responsibility for recruitment lie? And do you think... Brennan needs to take his fair share of ownership for the situation on the pitch as it stands. Okay, I'm, I was thinking about this earlier, and I and I think I think the best way to explain this, or, or how I th I think my view on how it should work, is I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna use an analogy. So imagine that me and you we're married, okay, all right, and you know we're we're very we're very you know with it you know up to date with the. So you and, you and I are married and I'm the one that's good with the money and I'm the one that's you know, good at finding a bargain, but you're the one with the vision of how you want this house to look, okay? Now it's our job to come together and you to say, I want, you know, I want 
uh, furniture that looks like this and I want this type of cooker and I want this type of, you know, beds and this sort of thing. And it's my job to go and find the uh, find these, uh, you know, what these beds and find them at a reasonable price, find them sort of close to what you're asking me. And and at some point, I, it's my job then to turn around and say to you, oh, okay, if you thought about actually we haven't got a cooker, all right, we need to get a cooker, let's go and find a cooker. And we go and get a cooker. Now, what's happening in, in this analogy is that is that you've pushed it and you've gone, right, I've got a really good idea of which tables I want and which chairs I want and which sofas I want. And I've gone, okay, well, but also we need this and we need this. And then we've come together and then realized that we forgot to buy a fridge and we forgot to buy uh, a washing machine at the end of it. Um, and we've now run out of money. Um, and between the two of us, somehow we've ended up in this situation. Um, but we've got really nice uh, tables and really nice chairs and we've got a really nice sofa because I allowed you to, you know, to, you know, I gave you that and I got you, got you what you wanted, but we completely missed the point and forgot that we needed a fridge and, the, and a washing machine. And that's what the pro, that's what's happened with Barnet this season. And of course, there's there's obviously it being Barnet. I'd imagine a wedding happening at the house every Saturday as well, uh, just <laughs> yeah. on, on repeat, uh, and a motorcycle club and fifty businesses yeah. registered at the address and that sort of but, stuff. And everyone gets a... injured as they come through the front door. Exactly. They all get injured and they sit downstairs. And they all sit in the front room until Martin comes around and throws them out the window. <laughs> but the point is, the point of the point of my analogy is, is that it's a partnership. It's about one person having the money and having, the, you know, having the trying to stick to the plan, and one person who's got the vision. And between the two of them, you know, using the best of both worlds or the best of their of the talents of both people, is coming up with the, you know, with a and challenging each other as well, and coming up with a squad of players that will be robust enough to get us through a season. And somehow they have managed to go through this whole process. So actually there was a part of me who was going, right, this is this is actually Dean Brennan's fault because he's head of recruitment. But on the flip side, at some point Harry Kuehl must have had turned around to him and gone, right, we've managed to get some of these players in, but shit, we need um, We don't have much legs in this team. There's the, you, look, you look at Cissé and Efron. Is there anybody else with legs in this team? And is there anybody who there's no players that like the ball in front of them either? So it, we've ended up with a sister as a team of very similar players physically and similar players stylistically. So I, th I think it's on both of them now, actually, the more I think about it and the more I sort of run it, run it in my head. Um, and I don't think it's the sister. I don't think the system is, the, is, the, is what's wrong with this. I think it's the, the fact that both of them have clearly not worked together properly. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think the the systematic flaw... I, so I don't think it's a system issue, right? I, I We're both big fans of the director of football model and the head coach model, particularly at this level, for the reasons we've outlined in the past, which is that there's a lot of manager player turnover. There's a lot of player turnover at this level. It just is. It's inevitable. You're not going to be giving out five, six-year contracts, right? You're giving out one, two, in the case of Richard Everton, for some unknown reason, a three-year contract. We'll come on to that later on. Um. So you need to have some stability in the club in terms of decision-making, personnel, squad building. So your director of football, director of football, whatever it is, makes sense. I think where it's gone wrong is in two big reasons. The first thing is Harry Kuehl is not a good football manager and he's not a good football coach. Uh, he was poor at what we've done in 23s. His side at Crawley had a good patch, a good spell, but they still conceded. I think it was the third highest amount of goals in the division. Is in when he was left over on a points on a goals per game basis. He failed at Notts County. He failed at Oldham. 
He's in the last chance saloon. But the problem is he systematically failed to demonstrate an ability to deliver a successful football team everywhere he's gone. And that is just not acceptable. And, and so going with him as your coach is problematic. Now, you don't want to sort of be captain hindsight and simply you don't want to slag off every appointment when they come through the door. God knows we've had enough managers in the last 25 years. To be honest with you, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. He's in charge at the moment. It's not looking great. But that's the first problem. The second problem is you've appointed Dean Brennan to a director of football role. It's his first ever director of football role. So he's never done that role before. He's been a manager before. And I think we can agree or disagree about how effective a manager he was. You know, he was responsible for the promotion of Willstone, who had a significantly higher budget than most clubs in their team. But still, he won the promotion. I'll give him that. Obviously, he won that promotion two years ago. He's still quite young. And I'd imagine that every single time he sits in the stands and we can see the goal and we know they had a sort of disagreement about how to set up against Notts County, for example, he must be sitting there thinking, oh, I could do a better job. I could do a better job. I could do a better job. And I think when you look at the best director of football and head coach relationships, it's when there's not that sort of threat, that hidden unspoken thing in the background. So I'd imagine now it's getting to the point where Kiel was feeling quite insecure, or I would be if I were him, whether he does sort of seem immune to what's going on in the real world. So hopefully in his, in his head he's happy, but in reality he's feeling quite insecure. And I'd imagine that is the, the elephant in the room every time there's some sort of conversation is that Dean Brennan could step in and Dean Brennan feels he could do a better job. And I really worry that that is only going to become more corrosive as this team keeps sliding as it is. The other thing that's a real frustration of mine, and we'll come on to the club later on, is that I do feel for Q and Brennan in some sense, because I do just feel the club is so dysfunctional behind the scenes. That's, it's, been my, it's my absolute conviction that is the case, that it takes extraordinarily extraordinary characters to turn it around. You know, Paul Fairclough got us on one or two good results. He is a man with an absolute legend at the club. He had to sort of step in. He was able to do it. Martin's been able to do it in the past. But I just worry that so much of that club is just broken behind the scenes that no matter who steps in, no matter what system is stepped in, if you've got those fundamental management issues that we've been going on about for years, it doesn't really matter who's in control or who's in charge, you're still going to end up with these problems. Now, that's not to excuse the recruitment because the recruitment has been poor in certain areas, right? It really has been poor. And that is ultimately on Brennan and, and Kuehl to fix. Um, but would we be in a drastically different position if we had picked any other two names out of the hat of the shortlist to apply for those two jobs? I'm not convinced, if I'm honest. I'm not convinced. And the final point I'll say is that when you look at a side that loses for a whole season, you can't just draw a fresh slate and then move on and say, oh, let's forget about that season. Like, that was just one off season. Football doesn't work like that. You've got that residual memory in the club. And as I said at the start of the season, after the Notts County game, Rich Everton, Harry Taylor, um, who else? Nugent, although he doesn't play as much anymore. Mason Clark. They are so used to being mullered every single week that that has a psychological scar on how you play football, right? They're not enjoying their football. You watch Harry Taylor, he's not enjoying his football. Mason Clark is not enjoying his football, right? It's really sad on a personal. We've seen these players be really strong players in League Two. And it's, it, my heart breaks. You look at Harry Taylor, you look at his brother, and you just almost... If you want a Barnet fan, you just want him to go somewhere else to enjoy his football, almost do a Mauro and go somewhere else and enjoy his football because he's clearly not enjoying it. And I, again, it's a kind of misconception that you say, well, actually, you know what? Let's just blow it all up for one season. We'll let it go to shit for one season. And the next season, we'll come back. Everything will be fine. It doesn't quite work like that. You know, the fans as well, when that first goal goes in, there's not much belief. You know, who, who really thought we were going to get a result at Bromley after we went 1-0 down? So 
my frustration is not, you know, is it Kiel, is it Brennan? Well, it's clearly both of them to some extent. Kiel's not a great manager. He's going to go at some point in the next few months, almost certainly. But when he comes back in, or someone else comes back in, is it going to fundamentally change? I'm not really convinced. It's hard, it's hard to add anything to that because I look at it and I think to myself, you know, I want to disagree and I can't. I can't disagree. It's And, and you know what my problem is as well is that even if he d- uh, Clanthos decides that to get rid of Kuehl and get rid of Brennan or bring Brennan in, does do we blow up the system now if Brennan comes in? Because we know that Brennan didn't get the job initially because he was he didn't want to work under a director of football. So if he steps in for Harry Kuehl, Harry Kuehl gets the sack and he steps in, does that now, do we blow up the system? Uh, to me, the system needs to stay. But what we do need to do is need to get the right people. And to be honest, uh, the more I think about it, the more I think that Dean Brennan was is far too young a candidate. We Ideally, we need a director of football sh- should be somebody who doesn't have aspirations to be a coach anymore in the day-to-day. And their job is more of a statement, like is, is a director role, is a director role. Somebody who will step away and they'll watch what's going on and they'll be involved in the deals and they'll make the decisions around recruitment and they'll be the ones that talk to the agents and they're the ones who are sort of digging around looking at looking at players and they'll be the ones that do the the legwork around going to see under 23s going to watch other teams scouting other teams and having a look at players leave the manager to to, to prepare the team uh, and focus on training and i just the problem is i don't know if i, I don't think i think Cleanthos is kind of like oh if it doesn't work we'll blow it up again and then we'll just keep blowing it up until one day you know we we get a really lucky break and then and it, you know there'd be this perfect, you know, um, what's the word alchemy and then all of a sudden it's like oh look, look the teams you know a bit like what happened with Martin Allen where Martin Allen comes in makes a couple of changes boom we get promoted it, that doesn't happen all the time um, yeah, but, but also sorry to, that's also a myth about how success works a great you know I'm a Martin Allen fan I love watching his play under Martin Allen and he was great for a certain period but like. By any objective measure, over the last 20, 25 years, we haven't progressed. Even when we've had, we haven't progressed. I think the highest we've ever got, I think we got for one game, we we were seventh in the league when we won away at Leighton Orient in League Two. And ever since, and then we obviously won a couple of games in the, when we were under Fairclough for the first four games of the season, and then we were top under Hendon. But in terms of league finishing positions, we've, we've never finished, I think we finished once in the top half of League Two, right? So we can, you know, to be honest with you, and is there a massive difference now between finishing 18th in League Two and 5th in the conference? In terms of footballing quality, not, not a huge difference. In terms of finance and reputation, etc., there's a big difference of being part of the EFL and the academy, etc. I get it. But the frustration I have is that I, you know, people talk about breaking points, and we'll come on to that in a moment about what they, ha- what they are with the club. For me, if we were to blow up this model, it would, it would just be, it would be so infuriating because... We would, it's just like we're shooting around in the dark, we're spinning in circles, you have no idea what we're doing. The number one issue with recruitment of managers is that no sane manager or coach would come and work at Barnet. Why would you work at Barnet? Why would you do it? You've got, as Michael says, we've got a, a, a ground that's, that's half empty and is declining, a supporter base that is increasingly frustrated and indeed just not there. You've got facilities that are fantastic, but ultimately, there's this culture, this bizarre culture of, of 
penny pinching around the club and we've talked for ad infinitum about food and all that sort of stuff. That hasn't changed. Fundamentally, it hasn't changed. Okay, you've got a lot of disgruns with ex-players and ex-employees. You've got managers that just keep coming through a door at a rate of knots. It's 25 in the last 10 years. It's a club on the down. It's a club on the down. Why would you want to, if you're a young up, up and coming manager, why would you want to do it? You talk about Luke Garrett, right? I, I, you know, Luke Garrett, an excellent manager at this level. Luke Garrett would be mad to come to come to, to Barnet. He would never come. Why would on earth he come to Barnet? He would rather stay at Boreham Wood than come to Barnet. And that's just a huge amount about what's happened in the last 10 years in particular. So the model makes sense. You have to give the model a chance. And that's why part of me is like, you know, Kuehl, you know, he's not really the answer, is he? But like part of me is like, we just almost have to have stability for the sake of stability. Because no matter what we do, more change isn't going to be the answer. I agree. Realistically. I agree. The fundamental things have to be fixed. Player care has to be fixed. Smart contracts have to be fixed. The entire environment and the professionalism around the club has to be fixed. Unless those three things are fixed, we are not going to be anywhere near level of success. doesn't matter realistically who is, who is uh, you know, managing or leading the club. Unless those things are fixed, it's not going to pick up that much. The one thing I would say, though, is and we'll come on to this moment, is, is relegation, which for me is now a distinct possibility. And Trevor made the point, how long do you wait to leave a change? I think relegation would be not far off fatal, right? I mean, it's difficult to, you can easy to over-exaggerate that, but it's very difficult to see us, you know, I don't know what would happen if we got relegated. But for me, I'm just, I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, it's just so frustrating, the same problems every year, every season, and there's no recognition of the pattern and there's no desire to fix it as far as I can see. Well, it's usually at a certain point. I don't know when the, when the point when, uh, when Cleanthos usually starts to panic because usually there's a point where Cleanthos suddenly finds some money behind the sofa and, um, and then we end up with like two or three players uh, appear in the team, like, you know, like a John Oster or a Graham Stack. So um, I'm hoping that, Count Foss has, has come back from his holiday um, and he's he's gone, how the hell are we second bottom to a team who've on minus points and with two points in the bag? All right, where are we, where are we deficient? And let's be fair, and I made this point as well on Twitter, is that, like you said, the whole blowing up thing is, is just people need to, you know, we need to stop this blowing up thing because... And actually, Harry Kuehl makes this point, actually, in that interview in that Australian that Australian website, is that all the best teams, generally speaking, have retained majority of their squad and they make one or two changes. And that, you know, and regardless of whether or not the team has not been that great the season before, there's always a core of players that you can build upon because one or two players, three players could transform a team. In our team at the moment, I genuinely think you fix the midfield, okay, and I think that the I think that the, the roll-on effect will be um, will be really noticeable. You get somebody in there charging around in midfield, winning tackles, going past players, driving into the box, making runs into the box, taking players out, and you know causing a distraction for teams. And you'll see a transformation a transformation because we've got players like Flanagan and Tasdemir and even Marriott who can play. The issue is whether or not have we got the budget? Has, can TK find the money, you know, from the back of the sofa? Um, do we have the people in charge who are capable of using any extra budget we might have to make the changes? And that might is 
the million dollar question because I'm not sure that these guys are capable of identifying that there is a problem. And, and I think that's the, the, the thing that's difficult though is I'm trying to separate the short term from the medium term. So I think in the short term, we've got the players and there's some talent in that squad that can do enough to survive. There's there's no doubt about that in my mind. I certainly think with a couple of additions, we can get there. And that's fine. And I, I, you know, it just the frustrating thing for me though is in the medium term, we're just stuck in the same cycle and it's so boring and I'm so bored of it. I'm so bored of every year we clear out the squad, we get a new manager in, it starts off, it doesn't go well, we fire the manager, we get 40 players, we scramble some results and we stay up. And like that has been the pattern with maybe one or two exceptions for the last decade. And it's just like, sure, we can we can fix this season in regards to staying up and finish 17th, 18th. But the long-term damage of this repeated mess is beginning to catch up. And it might just be 1% every year, 1% of this chaos that just adds a little bit more, a few more stones in the shoes every year. It might be a few supporters drifting away. It might be the lack of fight, the lack of belief, the lack of passion from the fans when it's yet another relegation six-pointer in October. It just begins to eke away at the heart and the soul of the club. And so we can fix the short term for sure. But until the long term and the medium term plans are addressed and there is just some consistency and some drive and some values on the pitch that are more than just a complete refresh every three months, I can't see us becoming a successful football club. Um, And, you know, obviously we did that interview with TK, uh, you know, a few months ago now. And from what he said, he was sort of sincere in, 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 I mean, you know, he wants it fixed, right? But I just don't know if he's capable having run a fundamentally broken institution for 10 years, whether he's capable of fixing it. And so, you know, that takes me on to what quite a few questions have been around here. This just deep frustration from supporters or some supporters about the role of TK, about the Nardis, you know, Nicholas saying here, uh, on the pitch, a disjointed, dysfunctional side. Off the pitch, a confusing, opaque mess. Lee Hyam saying, is there time for a protest? Um, well, I don't know quite what your thoughts are on that. But like, what are your thoughts sort of long-term on this, man? Because it's all very well us sitting here and saying, let's change the manager, let's change this little system here and there and try and scrape a few wins. But we're just going in circles. And the final point I'll, I'll sort of put to you before I let you respond is, is what Michael said. Um, and I really, I really enjoyed his analogy because I thought it, it really illustrated uh, our predicament quite well. And he said, instead of becoming the crew of the South, as the chairman hoped for a few years ago, is the club on course to become the Darlington of the South, rattling around in a white elephant stadium while plummeting down through the divisions? It's very possible. It is very possible. It's one thing, having been involved with the Sports Association, is that there is a lot of um, very, very disengaged fans in this club. A lot. And we are meeting with him next week. um, And we hope to get this across to him that we have to find a way to turn this around. And whether or not that means that we find a way around season ticket prices, we find a way around uh, deals to attract people back, we 
we make a we make a one or two statement signings or something anything that will add a little bit of excitement back because uh, we are this is i mean we're going back to in the apparently in the early 80s we were playing to f- crowds of 500 and i think it's very possible that by the end, by by about christmas we could be playing to 500 people and that's devastating um for a club that you know playing in a brand new stadium pretty much um a club with our history of you know in this especially at this level to to get down to 500 and it's and it's very possible and i don't think i'm being over the top i mean what if you had 900 recently um it is depressing i'm seeing it and i mean and it's coming down to some people like just not renewing season tickets i've seen so many people say i've not renewed my season ticket um for some reason, I keep doing it, but I think for me, it's like if I just if I don't if I don't renew my my season ticket, I kind of feel like I it won't give me an ex- it won't give me the drive to go go to the next game, and I'll just pick and choose the games I go to rather than at the moment where I'm like okay, any game that I can get to, I'll go to. Um, you know, if, 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 you know, if I've got no family things that I've got on, I'll go because I'm paying for it and I need to make the most of my my my, my investment, but. There are a lot of people who are just just turning around and saying, "You know what? I'm not re resigning this year," and and that we need to address that quickly as a club because um, we are we are really dying as a club, and that is no exaggeration. Just to sort of follow on Mem on on what you were saying about the club dying, I want to. I want to address a couple of things because there's a few things I've been thinking for a while now. And I think a couple of supporter experiences, which I hope you do raise with TK, have, have really brought this to light. One of them being Duncan, who I spoke to you before today's show, just to sort of clarify that I was okay sharing this. And his experience of this sort of whole club shirt mess or whatever it was that essentially resulted in him saying, I don't want to become a supporter anymore and being treated in a way that made him feel like that. The biggest thing for me is that it is death by a thousand cuts. And that it's just so confusing because on the one hand, you've got this premise, which is just inherent in the hive. It's inherent in every aspect of that building. This is a professional building where we have high standards um, and, you know, we're about high quality customer experiences. And you look at how TK talks about that. On the other hand, everything's a shambles. Like the first game of the season was a shambles. And this is the weird thing is that like none of us became Barnet fans because we wanted a B-Tech Arsenal, as my kids would say. Like none of us became Barnet fans because we wanted, you know, a watered down version of a Premier League club. You know what, we all know what Underhill's like. We all know the love of of supporting a lower league club. And we know it's not always about winning. And we know we're going to lose most games or not get results in most games. And we know that things are going to go wrong. And that's fine. But the the kind of seeping arrogance and entitlement that seeps from the club in terms of how they deal with some of these issues, I find absolutely infuriating. From the club shop uh, to the fact that it's the most expensive minimum price ticket in the whole of League Two in the National League. 
That is extraordinary. And it's the patronize, it's everything so patronizing from the explanation that we gave a few years ago as to why we are the club that we need to raise these prices uh, to, oh, well, we can't have kits in the club shop because, you know, there's not enough of a print run to make it. Well, it's just ridiculous. Like the hive is the home. When, you know, football is one of the very few local identities people have left right, in the world, you know, religion's gone, all these things are gone, it's not, you know, football is where you, you go to, to feel at home, especially in the lower league, it's a place where you go home, and nothing about the club as it's currently run, it's not even to do with the building, I'm not going to get into the hive and all that sort of stuff now, it's not to do with the building, it's to do with the environment, the people, everything is just run in an absolutely unacceptable fashion towards supporters, it's absurd, the, the fact that they refuse to post out season tickets is ridiculous, it's insane. It, I, I can't, how can you even begin to treat your support base in that way? It just makes no sense. And this kind of ridiculous economic cost theory that goes on is so stupid, considering that every single season we do the same things. You know, we skimp on the pennies uh, and then we end up paying the pounds later on. It's just so infuriating. And it's almost as if everything's kept at an arm's distance because, oh, well, your supporters, you wouldn't quite understand what it's like to understand how hard it is to, to run the worst team in the conference. Come on, give us a break. Show us some of the respect that we're due as fans. We follow the team endlessly around the around the country, or at least other fans do. I'm not talking about myself here. I'm talking on behalf of other fans. There are some fantastic, loyal incredibly intelligent Barnet fans who if you treat them with respect that they deserve will understand these problems you know we don't we don't we're not the sort of people that are going to complain about the fact that the beer is too warm whatever as long as there's like some sort of meaningful justification or we're not paying top dollar for it there's no explanation as to why the south stand's been closed there's no there's no explanation on any of the missing players there's these kind of anodyne post-match interviews the club has completely lost its soul it's completely lost it, it is not the Barnet that i was following not even like not even talking about the Underhill days, because I think there's a bit of rose-tinted glasses there. Like, some of those games at Underhill were not, not much fun, right? But, like, the thing that's made it Barnet is gone. It's gone, and it needs to get back urgently. The ticket prices are just too high. And I don't care about economic costs on this to the same extent that other people do. Because, bluntly speaking, if you do kind of like a... If you run Barnet on a spreadsheet, you won't have a club. Because there's no business case to be made, I, in, my, in my view, for a lowly football club. There aren't many of them. So you don't, you can't run it like a club. You can't run it like a charity either. You know, I'm not naive, right? You can't run it like some clubs run themselves. But there is a middle ground where it's a community club, it's a family club, it's a fun club, and a lot of the things we can fix without actually fixing stuff on the pitch. And it just is infuriating to me the way the contempt, because it is contempt in my view, the supporters are treated with at their football club. It's absolute contempt, and it's just patronising bullshit if I'm honest and it has to stop and unless that stops we're in serious trouble no matter who's in charge no matter who's playing and that's my rant over I'm sorry I've been holding on to that one for like four years and it's really really got my going no I agree and I was just looking at, I wanted to just double check the price here so obviously you know I've got two young kids and we announced this become a mascot for the bees um 150 pounds for one of my children to become a mascot for a game. Um, and they get, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff they get, which is quite good, but it's 150 quid. Um, I mean, that's a lot of money in a post pandemic, you know, scenarios where families are 
you know, are struggling. They get, it says here you get four complimentary tickets for the rest of the family. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in it, but it's just still, it's a basic, you know, this, all right, so this is one of my issues, all right, with Barnet at the moment. The, if you look around at the support base, there aren't a lot of young kids, okay, um, going around. When I look around and I think, right, and I bring my kids with me, I look around and see how many other kids of my, of, of, you know, how many other kids of a similar age to my children are there around the ground. There's very, very few, okay. We are an aging support base, okay, and a lot of our supporters have decided that they, they've, they, they remember all, they've got rose-tinted glasses about all the times at Underhill. And, then, and it's the thing. When you went to, when you went to but watch a Barnet game, you'd go to your local pub that you go to all the time. You can have a few drinks and all your mates are there, okay, and you can, have, you can choose all the nicest beers that you want. So if you want that ale, yeah, you can have that ale because they've got their choice on, on the counter. And then what you do is 10 minutes before kickoff, everybody leaves and they walk down to the ground together, start a little sing-song, they get in the ground, and they're buzzing. They've had a few beers, and they're buzzing. And they're on the terrace, and they're shouting with their mates, um, and they're supporting the club. And then as soon as the game's finished, win or lose, they leave there with their mates, and they go to the local pub, and they get drunk. Uh, and Or they go wherever. They might go off somewhere else. Um, that whole thing has been broken by the move to Hive. And... I'm a, I was really I am supportive of the hive, but we have to be mindful as a club that the afternoon for a lot most of our supporters who were all local, mostly local locally based in Barnet uh, or Potters Bar or anywhere that's within a te like twenty minute thirty minute bus ride, that was their afternoon, okay, and their afternoon started in the pub and then finished in the pub, okay. There are no pubs really to speak of in the area. So realistically, we need to create that community in the hive, in the encouraging people. And I won't mention his name because I don't know if he if he, he would like me to mention his name. But a good a good friend of mine, I've known him for years. I've known him for, like he's, he is a home and away Barnet supporter, one of the nicest guys you'll meet, and he's always super positive about most things. But he says to me, he says to me that him and his mates, and they're all very well known Barnet fans as well. They go to they go they go to up the high street and they what they've done is they've decided to keep their tradition of going to the local pub in Barnet and then they get an Uber or they get a taxi minicab or whatever from that pub to the ground with about five minutes to spare and they walk into the ground, go and watch football, and they follow that practice. Now all that money that they're spending in Barnet. Now I said to him, uh, I said to him I said. If there was a selection of beers here in the bar here and the bar was fit for purpose and they were serving you well well enough, would you drink here? And he said, yeah, of course I would. But he goes, but we come here and it's, we can barely find a drink that we like on the on the tap. He said, there's not much of a selection and it's really slow to get served here. They've usually got like one or two people struggling to serve um, behind the bar. And, and I look at that and thinking, th that is a big part of how we need to fix this club is we need to provide a service in the bar at the at the ground and we need to provide something there that will attract the supporters to get there to not have their pump pint their pints in barnet and then get a cab to the ground we need them to come to the ground and then have their pints in the ground that alone would make probably generate enough money to actually cut the season ticket prices 
okay? Uh, the, the economy of that, you, you spend more money. If supporters are coming in and they're spending 15, 20 quid on beers in, in the ground before the game, that will more than make up for the deficit of cutting the price. So then you attract a few more supporters to come in and get them re-engaged in the club and get them to bring their, their little kids as well because they're not bringing their kids anymore because they've stopped coming. Um, and that's the problem. It's this, part of this whole circular thing is, is that, you know, people stop coming or people don't come as often. They don't bring their kids. Their kids don't get the bug. You know, the kids don't become Barnet fans. Their kids become an Arsenal fan or become a Tottenham fan or a Chelsea fan or whatever other club in London's doing well at the time. And that community side has been totally, has, has been broken. And then getting rid of that stand or getting rid of that terrace, most people I know who had, who first came as a Barnet fan when they were younger, started on a terrace. And they started on the terrace singing songs with their mates and they'd go down. I started at Barnet when I was 13 with five of my school friends from St. Albans. And we came down and we would get the bus into, into you know, and we come in for, I think it was a fiver to get in. And, we, and we'd come in and we'd have a laugh and it would be good fun and we'd go back on the bus. And then from there, I went and started moving into the, started sitting down and stuff like that. And then I became, you know, a season ticket holder. That's where you start to, to, to basically to basically shut that terrace. You are losing the the, gra- the part of the ground, which is probably the funnest bit for the young supporters, okay? And if you lose the young supporters, we are never, ever, we are going to just keep diminishing the, 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 what's called the attendance every single game for years to come because we will never replace the old people as they die off or old people get too old to come to games. Yeah, I completely, um, I completely agree. And, and the thing that, again i find frustrating is that like i think someone said there was some sort of discussion on twitter and i respect different points of view on this and they said oh you know it it seems like a reasonable price to me and then someone made the point that it's kind of a false economy like cutting price to get more people on the gate so you'd say like oh well why don't we just cut the price to 20 quid or whatever and they're like well you never make the money back in terms of the attendance if you look at it statistically it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how this stuff works in my view you know, using that logic, you could charge 30 quid. Because actually, to be honest with you, there are probably 300 Barnet fans who would turn up if the price was 35 quid on, on the game. So why didn't you just do that from an economics perspective, bluntly speaking? But secondly, there are just, like, it doesn't even cost money. There are just things we can do to make that place a home. And, like, the whole message to the supporters should be, thank you for sticking with us. Thank We, we are so grateful to you for sticking with us through these difficult times, throughout covid throughout a really awful season, throughout continual failure. We're not going to get it right every time, but we're going to try our best. But we're going to show you how much we care about you. What are we going to do? There are so many basic things you can do. I've talked about the ticket ticket prices uh, there. That That is an investment, first of all. Uh, you should be sending a Barnet shirt to every single kid supporter as part of their season ticket. Okay, that's an investment. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I, I run a football club. The, 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 the cost of those shirts is not £45 a pop. That is ridiculous to even, it, it, it just insults my intelligence to even think that. Or you can get replicas that are slightly cheaper, right? So you do that. Uh, you you make it, you, you build the habit before you monetize it. So you, you make it, as I said, it should be a free drink for every single season ticket holder up until half an hour before the game. Not an hour and a half before the game. That's ridiculous. And again, it breaks that pattern, right? An hour and a half before the game. No one's going to get to the ground an hour and a half before for one free beer. They might get there earlier for half an hour. It's just stupid. It's just stupidity. I'm tired of being polite about it. It is just stupidity, bluntly speaking. Naming the stands. 
name the stands after players. They should never have taken away that Grazioli stand from Grazioli. Because actually, the legend stand, sure, there are lots of nice stands at the club, but by making it personalised, you build a greater attraction to it. Get a vote on what you want to call the stands with the fans. Great way to engage them and you go with the majority. There are so many small things. You can have bricks for season ticket supporters. Uh, you can build all sorts of community things at the hive. You can set up food huts. You can get food vans down there. But the, the, the basic things, it's just the lack of explanation around things is so frustrating. Why is car parking now eight pounds? Why? What, why is it now? What, what is, why is it called? There are perfectly valid reasons to say it's eight pounds. One of them could be, we are redeveloping the stand. We want to you know, change people's habits around parking. That's the reason we're making it prohibitively expensive. Just tell us. We could disagree with you, but just tell us. Why is the South Terrace closed? There's not been an explanation for it. It's just insane. It, I can't believe it. Can you imagine if any other football club closed a, a stand with no explanation? You know, it's a, it's a, a very stretchy example, almost as, as stretched as your house analogy. Uh, but, the, you know, imagine if Liverpool closed the cop and they were just like, oh, we're just going to close it. For no reason. It just doesn't make any sense. And even if it is for building work, it's not going on now. So <laughs> why just keep opening until it's necessary to close it? We know the reason. It's penny pinching every time. And as you said, it will absolutely kill the club in the long term. And unless there's some changes on the footballing side, and even if there is, and this is my worry, is that even if we, we, we bumble around to lower mid-table this season... I can't. I can see Tuesday night games dipping to five, six, seven hundred, and that is a disaster. That is a total disaster, and it, I, I, you know, I, I really, really worry. We got a bit off topic, and I've ranted more than I've asked questions, so I apologise to the listeners for that. Uh, but before we, before we finish off, there are a couple of questions here, man, uh, that I'd like us to look at. Uh, not least uh, questions around um, potential relegation and how likely that is. Um, and, and again, a couple of interesting points here from, from James Castle about, um, you know, implications of relegation. So just two questions. I mean, first of all, do, do you feel that relegation is a possibility or probability? And if so, what does that look like for the club? I, I, think, I think it is a, possible, a big possibility. Um, the, the team has shown, has shown no evidence that it, it can basically win matches. Um, it's shown no evidence that it is robust enough, as the squad is robust enough to get us through a whole season. Um, we seem to have a lot of injuries already. Um, I mean, has anybody said? Didn't we sign a, a centre back from Bolton? No, heard nothing about why he's not in the squad. Um, Turley, I'm assuming Turley's the one that's out long term. But again, we've had no announcement on that. I don't understand why why that we, that we haven't heard anything from that. Um, and I, th- and I, I mean, Turley is, is one of our leaders. And actually, when we started the season in pre-season with Turley, Widdison and uh, Richard Everton, I looked at that and I thought, you know what? I can imagine that going up. I can imagine that going away and, and you know, back to the wall performance with those three, um, you know, um, getting ahead and everything. I could imagine that because I think Richard Everton would be a better player with Turley and Widdison either side of him because I think those two have got the experience. But I look at this type of team now, it's lacks leaders. Obviously, we've talked about the midfield, lacks um, real pace. Um, and I'm wondering how where we're going to get points from because the teams that will get three points here and three points there, enough to get them brought, uh, ahead, will have one or two players that, you know, that will have, that will be able to get them some points in a season. And I just look at it, our team and I think there is no, there is no person that will be able to do that for us. Um 
So I think it's real. And if we go down to the, the next division, we will go. I think we will go part time. I've got no doubts about it. We'll go part time. Um, I think TK has already alluded to it. I can't remember if he alluded to us in our interview that we that potentially going part time is it, it was on his mind around sort of um, around the COVID period. But I think I think there's no doubts about it. We'll go part. We'll go part time, and it'll be a long struggle to come back up again because we'll be up against a lot of other clubs who have got good resources at, at Conference South. So it is looking it is looking scary until, unless something drastic happens. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, it's not alarmist to say, I think there is a 50% chance we get relegated. And I, if I'm being honest, it could be this season, it could be next season. Like there is very little evidence to suggest that we're going in the right long-term direction as well. Um, it's been quite a pressing pod, Mem. I'm sorry for that. And I'm sorry to those of you that have tuned in looking for some good cheer. Uh, hopefully Mem's excellent house analogy uh, brought you that moment of levity in the evening. Come on, you know that was, that, that, you know that was a good analogy. Come on, you know it. Yes, I, uh, I particularly <laughs> like the, the third and fourth minute of it. Um, but no, it was, it was a good analogy. I'm only one of you up, Mem. Um, but look, we're, we're going to keep, obviously, keep going, keep supporting the bees and, and, and really hope that things take a turn for the better. I would say that of all the results that I'm keeping a close eye out for, the most significant one will be the outcome of your meeting with TK um, uh, and the Supporters Association, Mem, and really hope we can see some progress there, uh, both to potentially look at some of the problems that have been caused, but also to potentially hopefully stop uh, some of the patterns we've seen being repeated in the future. Until then, uh, though, it's uh, it's only right that we end every show as we do with a little prediction. Uh, so, Mem, I've got uh, three predictions uh, or questions for you. Uh, so we are currently on Sunday, the 19th uh, of September. Um, within the next month, do you feel that we will have more wins or more club statements? <laughs> um... I think there might be one one. I think I think I right. There's no ifs or buts about it. We have to win against um, Weymouth. There is, and we've also got Kings Lynn. So we've got that. Literally, we've got those two games um, coming up in the, in over the next three weeks. Weymouth and Kings Lynn. Anything less than six points out of those games, and I think we are in deep, deep shit. Um, so I think the chances are, I think we'll probably be one statement and probably one win. No, judging by our, uh, our, uh, what's it called our current form. Okay. I'm, I'm, I did predict a few weeks ago that we would lose the last four games we've had and we did slightly, but we got one point and three losses. So, um, I'm disappointed that I didn't get the one point, but confident I'm on the right track. Uh, I'm fairly confident we will lose to Weymouth on Saturday. Um, and I'm fairly confident... I, I'm Actually, I'm fairly confident we won't win any of the next three, uh, which is a shame. But I really hope we turn it around, but I don't, I don't think we will. Um, well, we've got we've got Dover, we've got Dover, Weymouth and Kings Lynn in three out of our next four matches. I mean, if you're not going to win three of those four we might as well shut up shop for the rest of the season and just go home. Okay, second prediction. Uh, Mitch Brundle, 26-year-old Mitch Brundle, has his birthday 
on the 4th of December uh, when, he t- when he turns 27. So my question to you is, by the time that Mitch Brundle turns 27, will we have a new manager? Oh yeah, I think that's for that question. I've got, I've got no, uh, I have, I had no confidence in Q after after Dagenham, after the Dagenham game, having watched the way the team set up, and having watched the team yesterday at Bromley, nothing has changed in between those periods. Um, I agree with you. I think Q is really poor. Is really poor, and I can't see any way out for him at all. So yeah, that that will definitely happen. Um and I think in that period Mitch Brundle will probably start his own cop series on on Netflix. Um where he plays uh you know washed up det- New York detective um whose uh, his wife has left him and he lives in a you know some rotten flat in Croydon and he gets up every day and he pulls himself out of bed to get to training to go and play for Barnet. Um so yeah, I think I think that will be a new Netflix show. <laughs> Brundle and Payne. And his and his part yeah, and Payne will be his partner. Brundle and Payne. <laughs> Good God. It will be the first scene. The first scene will be will be uh, Payne pulling up outside Brundle's flat in Croydon and um with it with it with it's called uh, with a chicken cottage for him. And then he rolls him out of bed and he's like, you know, slaps his face a bit. Pours water on him and says, "Look, we've got a game. We're playing Weymouth," and um, pushes puts, pushes him into the back seat, and then Brundle will like sober up, and then the next thing you know, he finds a half-eaten burger in the back of Payne's thing, and he eats it, um, you know, and uh, and Payne's looking for you know looking behind him at Brundle, who's got like you know a shadow from you know last night's exploits, um, yeah, and then Brundle will be the captain for that game, <laughs> and he'll play on his own in the midfield one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we never talked about that, did we? As well, we missed that completely. That that Brundle was playing on his own in midfield as well, like the Partey role. Okay, final question uh, from me. I I estimate that Barnett's short corner routine moves the ball three yards. How how many yards? So total amount of yardage will the ball move in our short corner routine before we score from a single corner? So obviously 10 corners would be 30 yards. So I'm trying to say, so what you say, you're saying is that Beard will knock it to Flanagan and what you're saying, the distance between them is going to be more than what... More... Yeah. How many times will that ball have to move before we score off one of those corners? So if you said to me, the ball will have to move a total of 300 yards on the short corner, you're saying it's going to take us 100 corners to score from a corner. Although judging by, judging by that routine, yeah, I think it's going to be probably in about 25 corners before I think we might even get a header on target. Um, yeah, I think that'll be it. I've I've actually got a question for you. Go on. At what point will Sergeant save a penalty? <laughs> He's had seven. Well, there are two stats that I find extraordinary. The first one is uh, Mitch Brundle being uh, born in 1994. The other one is Sam Sergeant's height. <laughs> uh, where he's like six foot three. What? There's no way. Absolutely no way. no way he's six foot three. I was talking to James about this. There's no way he's That's from his three. Tinder so, profile. That's his Tinder uh, profile height. And you know people lie about their height on their Tinder profile. <laughs> there, are, there are good sides and bad sides to Sergeant's penalty, you know, that prediction on Sergeant saving penalties. 
the good news is he's had a lot of practice and he's going to get even more practice, I think, in the next five games. The bad news is, the bad news is, I don't think he's going to save any. I think he might save his 10th penalty, which knowing Barnett will probably come after 25 minutes of the Weymouth game. Okay, actually, now maybe the question should be, because obviously I think his loan spell is finishing soon. Will Sam Sargent save a penalty before his loan spell finishes? No. Does his loan spell finish quite soon then? Is Is he due out in a month or so? I think it was only two months. I think it was only two months initially. So I don't know. I think that must be coming up, what, a couple of weeks away? So we've got about four games. So that's another five penalties probably we'll concede. Um, and so so, so can, he, can he save his 10th penalty? I think actually, I think that potentially if he, if, yeah, I think he could save his 10th penalty. We've got enough time. Uh, just so many questions, man. I mean, we haven't even got on to, will Richards Everton not foul a striker on the halfway line who's doing nothing? Uh, you know, uh, will Tastamir uh, or will Mason Clark ever receive the ball and not do a step over? These are the sort of questions that you know, impossible, impossible, <laughs> impossible that we demand answers to. Anyway, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting to you, man, as usual. Um, I'm sure we'll be back on the uh, the airwaves very soon uh, to run our eyes over the latest run of Barnet defeats. Um, but hopefully, we can we can pick up some form. And, and as I said, more importantly, you know. Hopefully we can begin to address some of those systematic issues that we've touched on earlier in regards to, I think, some of the poor ways the club has treated supporters in the past. And I'm really hopeful that we can see some progress there. Um, but in the interim, stay positive, everyone. Keep uh, keep loving the club, even if it doesn't always love us back. Um, and fingers crossed, we'll speak to you very, very soon. Take care, man. Take care, mate. <laughs> stay positive after like the most negative beast pod ever. <laughs>